Welcome to Coffee and Contemplation. I'm Robin. I'm Steve. And in this installment of Starcourt Cinema, we are reviewing Ridley Scott's sci-fi horror, Alien. So in case you need a refresher, deemed culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant by the Library of Congress in 2002, Alien is the 1979 science fiction horror film directed by Ridley Scott and written by Dan O'Bannon, in which the crew of the commercial spaceship Nostromo come across a distress call from an uncharted planet. After investigating, discovering way more than they bargained for, they find themselves under attack from an extraterrestrial loose on the ship, picking off victims one by one. Starring Tom Skerritt, Sigourney Weaver, Veronica Cartwright, Harry Dean Stanton, John Hurt, Ian Holm, and Yafit Koto, Alien premiered at the 4th Seattle International Film Festival, wide released in the U.S. on June 22nd, and is based on a story by O'Bannon and Ronald Chesset. Alien won an Oscar for Best Visual Effects, currently holds a 93% on the tomato meter alongside a 94% audience score, and since the original film, Alien has inspired a massive subsequent franchise including novels, comics, video games, toys, sequels and spin-offs, and, upon occasion, heartfelt homage. This is a big title for us to cover, so let's dive right in. I want to start with our respective histories with the property, and we're going to mostly be talking about just this first film, Alien, but in terms of our connection to it and everything, I, I don't f- I feel like for this part, we have to talk about the whole franchise. Absolutely. So, At least so, a little bit. Yeah. So I want to start with you. What okay. is your history with Alien and the subsequent franchise? I saw the first movie, Alien, when I was pretty young. And it was a classic, you know, Steve was over at Grandma and Grandpa's. And uh, when they were going to bed and, of course, had cable TV, I watched Alien. More than likely wasn't allowed to at that age, but, you know, I was a rebel without a cause and I needed to see some cool sci-fi. I was already influenced by Star Wars and uh, I'd kind of snuck in one night watching Blade Runner with my dad. So I kind of had this taste for sci-fi early on in my life anyway. Growing up, I probably had literary crushes on characters like Joe March from Little Women or Elizabeth Bennett from Pride and Prejudice. And one of my only literary crushes that was kind of a badass was from Star Wars Young Jedi Knights, and that was Jaina Solo. And this is pre-Disney buyout Mm -hmm. back when it was Jason and Jaina, the the twins of Han and uh, Leia. You know, and lo and behold, here is me watching Alien and seeing this bona fide badass character who, from the start, I was identifying with stuff like the quarantine protocols on the ship. I was just really like riding shotgun with her and feeling for her, her situation, and ultimately was rooting for all these characters to live. But wow, what like deep-seated dread was going on throughout this whole movie and... I think my favorite part about it as I've gotten older is that it's so much you get to live in all of the anxiety that's happening with all of the actors in these found moments. And it's so much uh, tell and and not show in the whole show and tell aspect of Mm. a movie. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's what really built this deep seated dread. Aliens was a very different take, which was a lot more on the nose, action forward sci-fi. And while I still love that, was very different from Ridley Scott's take with Alien. And, you know, as I came to love and watch more of the franchise, uh, I have a really great friend named Trevor. 
who turned me on to this idea that Alien was a part of this wider universe, that there's all of these different little things that are connected. And a lot of those connections are in these corporate entities like Wayland yutani or uh, the Tyrell Corporation and Blade Runner. That goes to say that Alien, Blade Runner, Predator, uh, these were all worlds that had little Easter eggs and little references. And so so that's some of my history with the franchise and, uh, and definitely things and reasons why I love it so much. How do the, does the rest of the, the franchise strike you? Like in terms of, I mean, even all the way up to things like Prometheus and like the, oh, the, sure. the, the later films and... Aliens 3, in my opinion, as I love the whole franchise, it's something that I've come to appreciate over time, even if my first watch was kind of, whoa, what is going on here? Or what what were they trying to accomplish here? But um, by the time Ridley Scott really took the helm back, with Prometheus uh, in particular, uh, that's where I would say that my love for the franchise is very deep. Uh, I love Prometheus. Alien Covenant is not good, is what I hear is popular opinion. Well, I love that movie. And to really love that movie, I think you have to love the whole franchise. Because mm. so much of that first movie, Alien, is in Alien Covenant. And I love that because... You sort of have to put yourself back in this mindset of, oh, I now know all of this information as an audience member, but these characters don't. Mm. And so they tell the story in a slightly different way. I still love it and top-notch performances from so many people. But I love Covenant because I love Alien. I'm here for the deep-seated psychological thriller and horror. There's so much crescendo and rising action. And I love that so much of those movies deal with big corporation or big money. And where does the human, you know, person or number value next to that? We got folks right out of the gate wondering about the shares that they're going to make because they've been woken up by mother just to hear a distress signal from a planet that they weren't supposed to go to and is not even a part of the system that was their original towing assignment or returning to Earth. That feels particularly relevant in light of certain events in the entertainment industry. Oh my yeah, goodness, Robin, yeah. yeah. I didn't even think of it until you just phrased it in that way, but yeah, that's incredibly topical. Yeah. Yeah. Is Alien your favorite of all of the films? That's a really good question, is it, Robin. Is it too big of a question? <laughs> I think it is too big of a question okay, because <laughs> uh, I've started to love the whole world of it. Yeah. Maybe so much more than any single property. However... I think it's a monumental movie, it being all practical effects when it came out and the things that they've done with it since and even the aesthetics that they've tried to stick to 40 years later now is impressive. And that that I guess I would still say that, yeah, it is. Because to me, it's the original vision. It's the original formula. And you see so many of these uh, bits kind of happen throughout the rest of Aliens and the franchise. My history with Alien is non-existent. I have n I had never seen this film, and I have not seen any of the subsequent films in the franchise either. It just it was never one that I was super drawn to. I didn't know anyone around me who had like super strong feelings about it either. So it wasn't like I was super aware of it in, in general. Mm -hmm. And I know that my dad really liked both Alien and Aliens. I don't know that he had opinions about the rest of it. He never really talked about that. I know that he liked aliens a little bit more. That was more his traditional like kind of style of genre, but he liked them both. 
but yet we didn't really talk about it much because there were just other fr- there were other properties that were more prevalent in mm-hmm. terms of like what he enjoyed and what I think he could share with me. Um, however, I did know the basic plot of this first film, and I did know a couple of the big twists. I was somewhat aware of the iconography, like the xenomorph design itself and the face hugger. Like I had seen them and I had heard this film described as a slasher in space, whereas the sequel is, yeah, more of a traditional sci-fi action film. But I think what's interesting about kind of all of that is how the Aliens franchise has permeated pop culture in a way that is kind of unusual to, I think, the way a lot of these big sci-fi properties do like it's not like it doesn't have the same reach or ubiquitous quality that like star wars does and probably because star wars is a four quadrant property as opposed to aliens which is definitely not like made it is not made for children yeah that's Um, what i was gonna say is i feel like a lot of sci-fi is made and marketed to be an all ages thing but i feel like when you start to get into stories like Alien, Aliens, Blade Runner, the deeper themes and things that are going on and some of the stuff that doesn't change, like the human soul versus uh, science or these big corporations, those would be the moments where I'd be like, yeah, it would feel it would feel a little uh, sketchy to be like, hey, kid, you want to watch some uh, mm-hmm. some scary sci fi? Mm-hmm. But but mm-hmm. I would say that that's that is what that is. Mm-hmm. It's, it was something different. And But in spite of that, it has still managed to be one of the most recognizable things. Even if people don't know what, you, like, even if they see the xenomorph and they don't know what it's from, you tend to see it. It will show up in, like, especially in, like, genre film and genre literature spaces. It tends to, to be visible. And and by it, I don't just mean the, the xenomorph. I mean, like, the whole of the property. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's interesting, like, even, like, the characterization of Ripley has become very, very, like, it's not, like, I would say it's the kind of property that you don't, like, necessarily hear discussed, like, all that often in conversation. But if someone mentions it, people are going to know what you're talking about. Even somebody like me, who hadn't seen it, but I'm very aware of it and I'm very familiar with it. I mean, even, like, you know, certain lines, like, you know, I don't, I'm going to misquote it, but get away from her, you bitch. Like I've, yeah, I've definitely yeah. heard that, but I'm, but like, and I've seen the clip of it and I've seen the, the super iconic shot, I think from aliens three, where her head is turned. Yes. That's from three. One of the reviews that I had heard of this first film was that it tends to get overlooked in light of the bigger, brighter sequel. And that that tends to be something that happens a lot of the time with, I think a lot of the properties, particularly from this era, is that mm-hmm. they either tend to get overlooked the first installment or they get like l- mushed together into one entity. So it was it was interesting to finally get the chance to sit down and actually watch it. Yeah, and I would say that the franchise made so many people uh, and some of their careers too. Mm-hmm. Um, first movie, we got Ridley Scott and this put Sigourney Weaver on the map in a very big way. And then as we follow up to the next movie, we get James Cameron. And then as we follow up to the next movie, we get David Fincher. Mm -hmm. Uh, Those are already three huge directors that are still working today, still making movies. This franchise was already breaking the grain by doing something different and being scary Mm -hmm. sci-fi and and good uh, scary sci-fi at that. What was it like for you, though, to kind of come back to it in in light of doing this like slight like 
this slightly more critical analysis discussion we're going to have, but particularly like in, you know, not to get too deep into the actual compare Like I don't want to actually get into the stranger mm-hmm. things comparison, but knowing that that was what you were going to be doing, that what's what we were going to be doing here. What did that feel like? Did you approach it, watching it any differently or was it, was it just like, Nope, I'm just going to watch it, watch this movie. I love again. Uh, I would say I did approach it differently, trying to look for, things that maybe I had previously thought had impact or influence on Stranger Things. And in a way, I was kind of trying to affirm some of those thoughts in this rewatch. I think I had certain expectations because I knew the basic plot. Like, I knew everyone died except for Ripley and Jones. I knew that Ash was an android. Essentially, that it was sort of a suicide mission, but not by choice. Mm -hmm. Like, they were kind of doomed from the beginning. I knew certain things about what they find on the planet. I had seen the chestburster scene and I I had seen like a handful of other like really famous moments like even just like in you know greatest cinema moments montages and stuff like that at the For Oscars sure. over the course of the last 25 years you know so like I think if anything I kind of went in to watching it very like guarded curious to see how all of that is going to you know to borrow a term I use I have used very often on this pod to describe stranger things like the whole being greater than the sum of the parts mm-hmm. and how I was like, so what, what is the whole going to actually look like? And also like just not knowing like how often is the xenomorph on screen and kind of being curious about what, cause one thing I knew I, and I kind of still don't really know anything about is the actual like life cycle biology. How does all the, how, do, how does the whole, face hugger xenomorph like what how does all of that actually work because some of that based on just this first movie that that was something i guess i was kind of getting a little bit into my reactions already but that was an expectation i had was expecting to know a lot more by the end in terms of what actually happens and this first film actually really isn't interested in that like and and that actually reminds me a little bit of star wars which We'll come back to that. But yeah, I think in terms of my expectations, I think I, I was expecting to be to be scared mm-hmm. um, or certainly like thrilled or on the edge. Yeah, like moved because I knew it wasn't like super gory. I, I was expecting it to be like psychologically, maybe not disturbing, but certainly uh, unsettling. Mm-hmm. So let's go ahead and just talk kind of about Alien in its own right a little bit. Kind of like, what we, again, like what we did with E.T., because I know when I told you, like, okay, I'm sitting down to watch it tonight, you were like, I can't wait for your reaction. So uh, I guess I'll go ahead and talk yeah, a little yeah. bit about Give that. Give the reaction. Curious. So I can definitely see, I do definitely see why it has, it has the following that it does and it, and how it has the, just in terms of what an impact it had on cinema history, I can absolutely see that. I mean, I could see that even having just seen the chestburster scene, but especially in context, I also didn't know that was John Hurt. Oh yeah. So when I started watching it and I'm like, that sounds and look, it looks like John Hurt. Yeah, it boy, is howdy. John Hurt. That, that made the, that actually made the chestburster scene a lot harder to watch oh, because yeah. I knew it was John Hurt. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause I really, I really liked John Hurt. So it was like, Oh man, yeah. <laughs> I, I now know that's coming. I'm like, Oh no. It hurts, but it's so good. And yeah. that being the first time that you see, one of these chest burster sequences and 
it being, I guess, this point of origin and speaking to what you just said, like this movie really doesn't answer a lot of questions. It and really doesn't. I think that's great because now that it is a franchise, it, it is a perfect stepping stone to be like, wow, I'm curious. I would like to know more. Yeah. And well, yeah, like, just riding into this next movie, you'll already get more. Well, because my understanding is because I was left this the end of the end of the film. I was like, so what the hell happened? And then my understanding is that aliens is them going. So what the hell happened? Basically to some extent. So I'm like, all right, well that, that does like you, yeah, it's a good primer for like leading. It means to me that going into the next movie is like, it's, it's very natural progression. Like you said, when we see that mother has woken up the crew, not only to go to this planet, but maybe might even leave you with a seed of what did mother know? Or what did Wayland Utani know? That was the question. It was more what, because to me, Mother is a little bit neutral. Like, mm-hmm. I don't, I didn't, I, at least in having seen it only for this, I didn't gather that Mother was directly involved in any of the decisions. Mother was literally just carrying out the orders that she was given by mm-hmm. the overseeing company and then by Ash. So it was like, I saw Mother as a very, like, neutral presence. But as soon as Dallas goes into that room, I'm like, oh, now we're in Stanley Kubrick territory. But is Mother Hal? Mm. Is is it is this is this Hal 9000? And I didn't get that. I actually didn't get that. And th- actually, I liked that. Mm-hmm. I actually really liked that you didn't get something that directly comparable to 2001. How little Mother even is in the film at all. I was like, wow, I was expecting it to be a lot more of a presence. Not only... Are we scared of a xenomorph being on board? But we're now worried about what orders is mother receiving and giving us? Can we question that authority? And then we have a character like Ash, who we now discover is a synthetic, is working for the company. And I think Ash is more the driving force of that corporate sabotage and terror. I think mother almost might just be the ship AI mm-hmm. and just, you know, handles the orders. The the thing I know has been said a million times already is that how much this, this film is looking at humility before the greater universe mm-hmm. of like human hubris and the need for it. Ooh. But just hearing you say that makes me want you to watch the rest of the franchise. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's impressive that that is so clear right here at the start. Mm-hmm. So one thing I will also say, one of my biggest reactions to the film in general, because this is something I didn't hear. I haven't heard in other, the few other reviews I have and conversations I have heard about this film is about the sound design. Mm. Because yeah. I watched the film with, I watched it on my TV, but I, I listen, I, I listened to it through headphones. Uh, Jim Shields was listed as the sound editor and Bill Rowe is the re-recording mixer, Mm -hmm. but there was a very large sound team and had to be, I will say there was a lot of very obvious ADR. So I'm not necessarily referring to that, but I'm, but I was really impressed with the use of design and, and, and mixing particularly because of when you would hear people breathing and when it would noticeably come in. And it like a couple times I thought, was that just like, accidental and i'm like no i think it's being it's being used intentionally to become aware of something that is so human when they're in there looking for the face hugger when it's just disappeared ripley and and ash have gone in the different directions and dallas is standing there and you suddenly hear uh kane breathing 
And he actually looks over like he just heard him start breathing. Mm-hmm. And I went, that was an interesting decision. And the movie is filled with little sound moments like that. Just little ones. Particularly like when uh, Parker and Lambert are like throwing all their shit together for the coolant stuff. I'm like, you guys are being so loud. <laughs> oh yeah, so loud. But the, but also the kinds of sounds that they're using like as someone who dabbles in sound design myself, it was like, that was such an, like the kinds of noises. It's not a lot of like, it's not super bassy. They're very bright sounds mm-hmm. and it's a lot of like clattery. Like it sounds messy. Lots of tangy sounds yes, like, and it, like metal on metal. That and things kind of like falling. Like it doesn't sound, it, it's not like rhythmic and orderly. It's chaotic. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah. And that I think is a really like, strong undercurrent for the mood that the film sets sound is so important to keeping you on the edge to -hmm. keeping you baited for wanting more also to be distracted to not see something or hear something and i would say in movies like this and also in stranger things you know i will say that the sound is one of the things that i think is also very different from star wars very which i mean granted star wars is a isn't i mean it's a legendary sound design style but the reason i bring that up and i point that out is because i actually think visually there was a lot more about this that reminded me of star wars visually than i expected it to particularly like i mean the whole underside of the nostromo i'm like am i looking at a star destroyer like they it seemed very similar and that's that's not necessarily a bad thing i'm not i'm not like critiquing it Mm-mm. for that i'm it's not like oh it's not original i just mean that i was surprised because it, I had heard a lot of positive reviews of the film and said, like, it feels so distinct visually from so many other things. And I went, I really feel the 70s-ishness because this was smack between New Hope and Empire. Mm-hmm. And it, so I'm like, I can feel that connective tissue of the time because because it's really what it is. It's a time period thing. I mean, even the fact that Mother is an entire room, I'm like, it's just because it's a computer. Yeah, right? exactly. But like the fact that like even to get in, the fact that they've got to do the like key code thing in the switch and then they have to pull it out and then the door. I'm like, that's so 70s. Yeah, very. But, All I, like, of these but I like that. Steps. It's it's a it's kind of in a way that actually invited me in as someone who was like not super like compelled by the premise because I knew it's horror and I'm not a big horror person. I was like, but I kind of feel a little bit both kind of in a good and bad way for me in that I felt a little bit more invited in because I'm like, oh, this actually feels familiar. If I didn't know what I was in for, if I didn't know the whole story, I feel like that actually would have set me up to be that much more scared later on because it's like, oh, I kind of feel like I'm a little bit in a safe, familiar place. And it's like, oh, no, <laughs> not at all. <laughs> but but again, I, I, I respect the film in that way for that. I think yeah. that actually enhances it probably in a way it never intended to. And, and not across the board either. Like there are definitely aspects of the visual style that are very different from, from, from Lucas and from Star sure. Wars, but it did. That was one of my biggest surprises, but the sound design never feels that way. The score does a little bit. It has moments. And especially yeah. because, uh, it felt a little Williams. esque. I, I was say like, okay. Horns and trumpet mm-hmm. are very strong Williams pieces. Yes. A lot of small, subtle horn music is going on throughout a lot of Alien. And I like it because it gets so soft and gloomy at Mm -hmm. some points, but it's also just as staccato and bombastic at some points to really ignite some of that terror. But there's a lot of quiet 
when Brett is walking around in what feels like to me, almost like a factory and has these chains that are hanging down and it's wet and there's lights that, that are almost makes, flashing. I know makes no there's sense. so much about that location <laughs> that doesn't cool. totally make rule sense. Of cool. Yeah. It's a rule of cool. Amen. Total rule of cool. Because I feel like that is where we see the mind flare in like season three. Billy goes to it. That like warehouse factory oh, type of yeah. setting. Oh, those settings are similar. And it's like where a creature was inhabiting yeah. or holding up. It drew Billy in along with other people. Oh, dragged him in. Yeah, dragged him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Which we get, a, we get a shot of that. Yeah. But that's another place where I'm like a, a feeling and an ambiance of a place that even felt kind of unique and weird for a ship in 1979 alien we just sort of saw that live again somewhere else mm-hmm. yeah i think in stranger things it's a mill that's it yeah, yeah. it was a mill it, and I, it was like yeah that's a really that's a brilliant pull because i did not make that connection and that to me was just like an environmental choice that mm-hmm. i was like man wow what a what a cool cut there that scene probably has the spookiest creepiest moment for me in the entire movie oh really it's the shot of jones while he watches him go up oh yeah that is yeah. because he be, because there's something in like un i was gonna say inhuman jones is not a human <laughs> like the stillness of the cat it's like there's something really creepy about that it's a real cat it's, it's not a real it's cat. A, like i mean and and it's so it's not that but there's something about the way that the his head is completely still and his eyes just watch like Watch a predator. Brett go up. Yeah, it's creepy. And that is kind of something that, you know, I guess I hadn't really thought about in a minute. But like, you know, I have cats. I've got Oscar and Pedro, my two right, buds, right. my good time boys. Uh, but I, you know, I feel like it's something like, you know, we love cats and the Internet culture right now. You know, we all love and bless and praise slash worship cats in a way that maybe we've never before. But we also just maybe constantly forget that they're carnivores, they're hunters, they're predators. And that moment to me says something about like the animal kingdom and that unknown mm. that we still don't really know. Uh, and I think that's something that maybe even is like recognized in that moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, cause I love the bit right before that all happens where Jonesy is like, growling and he's like moving back and it's a wider shot of the mm-hmm. cat and i'm like what were they doing to this poor animal but right. like but the because I, I do i wonder like how did they get the cat that still like for that long of a shot but yeah spookiest moment because i think it's the most unnerving moment in the whole movie mm-hmm. for me my only other real like observation was just to finish up with the score the thing about the score i really really appreciated how uh, Cause I knew, I knew that the end didn't end with the ship blowing up. Mm-hmm. I knew that, I knew that that thing was in there with her. I'd had that spoiled for me. Darn. I didn't know when, but I saw it immediately before the hand came out. I'm like, it's right there. It's right there. Yeah. <laughs> um, because I've heard some people say that like they didn't see it oh. until the hand comes out. And I'm like, it's right, it's right there. It's right there. <laughs> um, but I remember thinking like, even if I didn't know, I feel like I would have been like, why are we still in the movie then? Yeah. What? Why? Why? The music is still sinister. It's still too quiet, and I'm like, we're just still going. But I like that how as soon as that thing gets blown off the engine or the the um the thruster the yeah the the pipe, 
that it's like then the music changes i think to a major chord very yeah and, or major key and i was like so now i know i can believe you now i know i, I okay yeah like all right now it's the end yeah it's such a haunting thing even how it ends because she's just putting herself back in cryo sleep and just hoping mm-hmm and of course, yeah, we now we now vulnerable. have like and 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 like I am trying to, I wish I could hearken to a day that I was alive in 1979 mm. and saw this movie with no concept of a possible franchise or anything like that because that is a hell of an ending to end on mm-hmm. and just also still feel the dread of like. I don't really know what happens to that character. Mm-hmm. I don't know if anyone's going to find her. Mm-hmm. I also don't know if anything else is on that ship with her still. I mean, because one of my thoughts was like, you know, thinking about it from that perspective of like, there were all those eggs. Mm-hmm. Franchise wise, something that someone said once that I had, I mean, I, again, I don't know if this is something everyone else has talked about to death, but it was the first time I had heard someone say, Think about a new hope and you have a weapon like a lightsaber. The only time, the last time you see Luke wield it in a new hope is when they're on the Falcon and when he's doing that exercise with Obi-Wan. He does not use the lightsaber after that. The only other lightsaber you get, fight you get, is the fight between Vader and Obi-Wan, which is, I mean, the character stuff is cool, but the actual fight itself is, there are better stories, there are better, uh, lightsaber fights in star wars i'll put it that way for sure but thinking about the fact that we can say that because we know that because we you and i anything post you know the original the ridge tridge like we have that knowledge we know that empire is coming we know that jedi is coming but from for a 1977 audience you're going to introduce this and not know, like, let's even give Lucas the be- the benefit of the doubt, which I don't actually do. But even <laughs> if you did and say, like, absolutely, he knew there were going to be sequels. He knew about, he had already choreographed the entire next fight in the next movie. The audience didn't know that. And you didn't necessarily know you were going to get greenlit for another movie. And you're not going to put any of that in that first film. So it made me think of this in a very similar way. Like, you're you're going to put all this stuff in here, but not explain it. At least not fully. Granted, I don't know, even though I was left going, I don't know how much of that I actually understand Mm -hmm. or how much I'm supposed to understand. Like how much of it did I just not absorb being so new to it all? But (laughs) at the same time, how much more could you have gotten in this film? Because Mm -hmm. A, it's not the point. The point is survival. Yeah, just and that's what I mean when I say I can appreciate the boldness of this film. Even if it's not like something that I'm like dying to watch again. Like, yeah, a mad respect for it. I am a fan of the creature being unknown to us. Mm-hmm. Us not knowing its weaknesses, making assumptions, stuff like that. And think things like that are perfect uh, when they start to come into other different genres or properties and, you know, insert stranger things here. And we spent the whole first season learning and trying to understand things about the Demogorgon, how to hurt it, what could hurt it. And it's where things like, you know, fire, mm-hmm. uh, in the way that that translated with alien, 
I see. I see that translating here, kind of. Here's the thing. I thought. I thought that was bullshit. Yeah. Because Ash is the one who suggests it. Oh yeah. We have textual evidence for the fact that fire hurts the demogorgon. Yes. And that's a, probably a good pivot point into like really let's like delve full tilt into all of the Stranger Things references or all of the aliens references mm-hmm. in Stranger Things, because I think that's so interesting. So much of like what we're talking about with Alien and how you like smash that against Dungeons and Dragons, which is kind of. Like, I don't, it was funny to me going into this. I'm like, I didn't think there'd be quite so much of an, like, I knew that Alien influenced Mm -hmm. Stranger Things, but I didn't realize how much of it did, not in that, like, direct way, but in, like, atmosphere and tone and some of the style. Because I know that they've said, like, Jaws is their biggest influence, but... Because, like, when I went looking for stuff, it was, like, a lot of the more literal things. Like, so, the list that I found listed... That, you know, this the residue, the sticky residue Ooh, that yeah. gets left behind by the Demogorgon. And then, like, the way that the web, like, goo, you know, is used to, like, trap its victims. But also the goo that's, like, kind of, the gates are closed by that, like, web, like, sticky substance. And how that's very indicative of of the, not just the upside down, but, like, the Demogorgon itself. And mm-hmm. that's obviously from here. The egg that Hopper observes in the finale in the upside down of season one the tendril that was in will's throat yep um which like we are going to talk about yeah that. we're definitely going to talk about we're that gonna talk about that the design and the appearance of of not just the demogorgon but the mind flare like having the big hr geeker look to them mm-hmm. the upside down's appearance definitely influenced by the planet in the first season, David O'Bannon is the sta- is the state trooper who claims to have found Will's body, mm-hmm. and that's taken from Dan O'Bannon's name, the writer. Mm-hmm. This was something I observed. Bob's mission in in the Hawkins lab. Definitely, I was like, "Oh, hey, Dallas." Oh yeah, big yeah, time, mm-hmm. big time. Um, the flickering lights. Yep. That was to me one of the things I went. That that was not on this list. That was another one that I observed. And the strobe lighting effects. And I know we're here to specifically talk about Alien mm-hmm. because there's a lot of Aliens references as well. Yeah. And so I'll try, and we will definitely not try to talk on too much of that because that may, you know, be its own episode at some point. And yeah, I think we totally could do yeah, that. And maybe. I want you to watch Aliens. Yeah. So there's a part of me that wants your reactions to, uh, to on another episode as well, especially because again genre different i have this uh conversation with some friends as it relates to our love for the franchise and it's which one's better alien or aliens but i have a theory that the duffer brothers one of them is like me and the other one is like my friend ian one brother that loves alien and the other one loves aliens and i think the two of them probably fight about that to this day still about which movie is either better or serves the franchise the most. Yeah, that's entirely plausible. I mean, because one thing I will say is like knowing how much this one clearly influenced the show and yet knowing there are Aliens references just because people have said so, including Mm -hmm. you, it's curious that the show manages to fuse them together, which is so interesting. Mm -hmm. I mean, and that kind of speaks to something I've said about Stranger Things before, which is Stranger Things plays a genre. And most of the time it does that pretty well because most of the ways that it tends to do that is through style. But I think where they tend to be less like experimental with genre is in the, in is in story structure. Mm-hmm. I think D and D being like 
such a vital part of its like DNA Mm -hmm. is so interesting because that I think is also something that helps fuse the different types of influences. And this is a really good example of that. Like, I mean, this perfect hodgepodge casserole Uh of so many different properties and ideas and how they actually all can kind of double helix around one another and just keep driving. Because they're complementary of one another. Mm -hmm. The last um, like reference homage that I had, that I had, observed that I have on my little list here is that the design of the Nostromo and I'm, I'm guessing probably the designs from aliens as well feel like it played a role in the design of the underground base of the Nina project. Like, cause I know that we've got the reference from aliens and that, but I was like, that looks like it looks like the, the Nostromo a little bit in there. Can confirm, or at least I feel strong feelings about that influence being vital uh, yeah. there. And you know, like not identical. Yeah. The design of the Demogorgon for sure. Like I can see where there were influences, the lack mm-hmm. of eyes, the, the fact that it does have like the teeth. Yeah. But the thing I was surprised when watching it, cause I was like the Xenomorph feels almost like an exoskeleton. It feels like a beetle. It has a, mm-hmm. it has a hard like look to it. And it's, it's like spindlier. Whereas uh, the Demogorgon feels very like, fleshy and like gooey mm, i don't interesting. know that well, this was, is cool yeah, i like hearing like, this because i feel like my interpretation of the xenomorph over time mm-hmm. is very organic and fleshy and wet looking and while it does have what i'd maybe call hard edges mm-hmm. that i think i'm seeing that exoskeleton design and, and to again, it as well just from this movie yeah i've only seen this film yeah well and even down to the shape of the head like the mm-hmm. fact that the the xenomorph is like this long head and that the mouth does open but it's it's like this frontal design whereas the demogorgon is wide open yeah, which i love that yeah kind of like what i said about some of the stuff in et i'm like i don't think they're like i one-to-one like there's definitely a big yeah I, I, like i think that's that's where they pulled like some of the the D stuff in yeah. for sure let's talk about the demogorgon in greek mythology because that literally was just a demon of the underworld mm-hmm. then the demogorgon from D in classic i guess monster manuals is like this monster that's humanoid in shape but has like reptilian like legs and feet has snake-like arms and has almost like these baboon mandrill like faces and has like an ape-like strength so it's it's a really bizarre looking creature that when you watch stranger things really does not translate at all and that's where i'm like boom there's the alien influence has it always looked like that in D&D, though? Like, in the 80s, and like, 83, would it have looked like that? It's had a couple different designs okay. over time, but the, I would say the most popular design in D&D culture is, like, it's like that. It's mm-hmm. like this half-reptile, humanoid in shape, and it almost has, like, snake-like arms, um, and it almost has, like, two faces, and it's these uh, yeah. baboon mandrel-like faces, where one's usually blue, and I think the other one's, like, a red. Yeah, I ask because I will say that the logic within the show works for me in insofar as when Mike goes, the Demogorgon, and he puts the mini down. Mm-hmm. That's close-ish to their design in Very. the show. But I, I, I remember thinking that, I don't know if, I ever, if I've ever said this on the podcast, but I remember that in season one, I thought I really like, I actually think them using the term Demogorgon, because a lot of people have said, it's only got one head. So why are they calling it Demogorgon? But I think they went with that very intentionally because of Elle's arc of, 
I'm the monster. She she has these this dual nature to her, which I think is something that actually has continued through the entire series. Sometimes effectively, sometimes not. But I think that that being a potential culmination of where the series is headed, I actually think is pretty cool that they went with... Now, granted, they could have still given the Demogorgon two heads, but I think that might have been a lot for the, for the kind of show they were starting with in season one. So, but yeah. I agree it's, with that. But it's, I think that yeah. could have been too much. Yeah. And I guess like where all of that starts to dovetail for me and I think is really cool is like, we still get this really cool D&D monster that maybe had a type of design to it, but there are things about it that still translate really well. Like the Demogorgon being this demon from the underworld, both in D&D and Greek mythology, uh, at least in D&D, it had like a hunger for life force. And that translated to me like it's hunger for blood uh, in season one. So I loved that name. It felt so appropriate. And Mm -hmm. then seeing how it, engulfed people and maybe gorged on that blood uh the stranger things design specifically uh yeah i loved that i thought it was horrifying uh it did create this connection point to me that felt like a this creature could be literally sucking the blood and or plasma out of anything that's living oh yeah Yeah. scary stuff and love that but then this is where i'm like oh man that hr geiger influence on alien translated to me to the demogorgon that humanoid shape that skin that's like always when it's uh flower like mouth is open uh it's almost always wet and Mm -hmm. and like drooling the same way that the alien does or the xenomorph in alien and then oh my gosh classic horror movie tropes here but you know when we find the site of a bad thing that's happened or where someone was taken we always see stuff that was left behind like a slime or uh an like you know the 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 shell of the skin before almost like a snake that is another thing that translates from alien over here to stranger things these moments where we've seen an atrocity but what was left behind yeah being in the upside down, getting an extended period of time with Hopper and Joyce in the upside down. Mm-hmm. I'd already been kind of drawing the parallels of like, oh, wow, the particles in the air kind of feel like I'm on the planet LV-426. I was like, this is kind of cool. I was like, I like that that aesthetic, even if it was just one little thing that they plucked out of that movie, I was happy to see that in the upside down for it to feel otherworldly. Otherworldly, yep. And those those tendrils and like there is something about the upside down that not only does it seem gray and dark all the time, but it seems wet Mm -hmm. and like organic. And that is something about not only the planet. Yeah. 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 Like black mold. And also I guess I'm going to, I got to directly riff on this too. Yeah. And And it's it's cold, cold. Yeah. The 1979 poster has an egg, uh, like one of the alien eggs uh, at the top And then below it has what looks like an alien landscape down below. And I'm going to talk about that in just a second, too, because we love practical effects. But the poster correlation, Stranger Things said in the upside down, no one can hear you scream on this poster. And I thought, oh, wow, wicked, because 1979 alien poster, it says in space, no one can hear you scream. So I loved that riff. I love that they painted their poster to look like. Uh, the alien poster. So I already kind of was feeling this influence walking into Stranger Things. Also to speak to some really cool 
aspects of the Duffer Brothers, I know that they're influenced by practical effects and how much they really want practical in as much uh, of what they can do. And the Alien movie was one of the first big horror practical effects movies that was tackling so much. It was uh, it was a lot. It was very ambitious for 1979 and on the heels of something like Star Wars, but it still accomplished so much. And so the poster, just digging deeper again, the Alien poster, that is an actual chicken egg. And it was punctured and just shot back with a green light to create that effect. And then the alien landscape to what maybe we assume is a planet, that is just an overcooked, uncut sheet of brownies. That's pretty rad. I just see where all of that starts to come full circle into Stranger Things as well. Mm -hmm. I do think it's interesting, though, because like the bit at the end where they're in the upside down and they find the egg... Mm -hmm. In Stranger Things. I'm like, they never really come back to that. No. And that's something huge to me because I'm like, so wait a second. I can only maybe make a correlation that the Demogorgon grew out of this egg in some capacity. And it just makes me wonder things because... It it might be in season four. Like they might have, they might be, there might be eggs in that sequence where you see Henry walking through the upside down, but I don't remember it being terribly prevalent. Me neither. You see Demogorgons, Mm -hmm. but... Because the demodogs formed from that little larval state that Will yeah. coughs up. But which, that's also cool because, then Robin, you're going to learn dem- so much more about the yeah. aliens and alien culture. The demodogs, to an extent, depending on how far down the rabbit well you fall in the alien franchise, you will see like where, where do that? they come from, why, and... Uh, you know, yeah, because you got some of that by seeing what happened to uh, poor Kane. Poor Kane. Yeah. Well, because the thing is, and that, that like, so let's let's talk about about that happening to poor Will. I'm really glad that they didn't go full chestburster. Oh, same. Because even just basically what happened to Kane up until the actual chestburster sequence, like with the face hugger. Knowing that that happened and how traumatic that would be for an adult, and that that's what happens to this child. And then the fact that like, yeah, because I even when I was writing up my notes, I was like, I was trying to find another word because the description I found was of, of of what happens is like, yep, the face hugger jumps onto you. It puts the thing down your throat and then it, imp- it impregnates you. And I'm like, is there another word I can find? Because Will is this child. And that's really, really, really twisted. So I'm kind of glad. So I'm so like I said, I'm really glad that they didn't go fully that route with Will. Like I, I mean, it's, it's something I don't want to think too closely about, frankly, because it's like, it's really dark. The other thing I want to, that I do want to come back to though, I want to, I want to talk a little bit more about the light, the, the flickering lights and the strobe effect. Cause mm. that was like really, I thought that was such a, like to the point where I don't even know if they intentionally used that as a, as a thing that they brought into Stranger Things from this movie, but it was hard not to feel like so many of the big action sequences that happened usually with something supernatural in the show have that very same like i remember uh charlie heaton and natalia dyer talking about the scene in the hospital in season three there's like the shot by shot um i'll put that in the show notes actually the link to that they go shot by shot with the the scene in the hospital where they're both being attacked by the two different their editor and and oh, the, oh, the reporter yeah, yeah, yeah. but they're both possessed by that point they're both flayed mm-hmm. by that point and like them breaking down those stunts and whatnot and like talking about that. And they, and Natalia Dyer said, she was like, it, 
working in one of the hardest things about shooting that those sequences was the lighting because it, the the lights were really doing that and so being in that room with those lights doing that for hours at a time she's like it kind of started to mess with your head like mm -hmm. it and and i and i hadn't even thought about that but then it probably could give you a headache after a while well it kind of made me wonder like did they turn them did they like make them steady between shots like when between you know between setups i hope so at least I'd for, like the, to hope so. for the crew like making sure they didn't <laughs> fall over themselves if nothing else like just for okay we need to make sure the camera doesn't tip over and break yeah. but like yeah i it, i was like that had to be rough and then thinking about the end the very end of season one when Elle sacrifices herself that's all strobe lights a lot of the stuff in the hawkins lab in season two is like that and then we get lots of that in nina in mm -hmm. season four so it's so it, it's very it's a very common thing i mean the language of the light in Stranger Things is almost something I might do as an entire episode at some point because I think the, totally could like the sound design, the way in which they use light from a narrative perspective is really interesting. So almost like the narrative perspective and then also like the the way in which it's used in moments like this. And I mean, I noticed that in Alien, I think a lot of it is to hide, but it kind of twofold because it does make it feel you can't quite see it fully and it's mm -hmm. it's alien it's you know alienating to your senses because you can't get a fully you can't get you can't get your bearings it's dark and, it's distressed and it's very disorienting because there's because there's yeah. the, the lights are flickering but then one of the things that i noticed that adds to that that isn't really in stranger things but i i noticed it in the film is all of the like valves that are shooting off the the steam and the mm -hmm. mist and it's like same thing it's all just completely disorienting so you know when they leave the nostromo in the drop ship and go down to lv426 you know again that that particle effect that was on in the air on the planet i just thought that was a genius choice to pull into a place like the upside down mm -hmm. because it just gives it a very distinct at, at all times in every frame every shot I know I'm in a different place because this particle effect is going on. Mm -hmm. And that, I think that's, honestly, that's a genius move. So love that choice. I'm not sure that they were totally taking that from Alien, but that's one that as I watched it again, I thought, yeah, that, I think there was some influence there. At least I like to hope so. If they did, they really ran with it because yeah. it's, it's, it's become much more prominent, I think, in Stranger Things than it ever is in Alien because it's only on the planet. Mm -hmm. But like the merging of the universes, I mean, you've talked about the merging of the planes mm -hmm. before. I feel like that ending up like, and that's kind of what I mean, like taking this particular visual element from Alien and then taking this concept, you know, story arc from D&D &D, and then using Stranger Things to blend the two, you end up combining aspects and making something new. It feels more unique because... Mm -hmm of the way in which the element is being implemented is not, it, it ends up Nailed taking it. on a completely different meaning. It gives it this and, new and supernatural not. feeling. It's otherworldly. And I just know anytime I'm there, I already feel a little bit like, Ooh, I'm a little on edge now. Cause I don't know what could happen in mm -hmm. the upside down right. or what else is even out there. Well, uh, cause remember in the first season, like when they go down into the basement of the, of the lab, mm -hmm. It's all in there. Oh, yeah. And it's almost like it's spilling mm -hmm. over. I was just going to say, well, how interesting, though, that you have these gates that are like glaring red, but it's cold. And then I thought, I don't think the Upside Down is actually cold. He likes it cold, but I'm like, 
do they ever actually address that? Because they're certain so. they're certainly not cold in when they're in it in season four. Mm-mm. You wouldn't know in season one because they're in those suits. But well, and that's an, that's a whole other thing I want to talk yeah. about is the suits. Well, I love the suit design. Yeah, I love the lights in the inside of the visor in particular, and that mm. does give me a strong aliens vibe. Not just with Alien, but throughout that franchise, the sure. style of those types of space suits. But I started to wonder a whole bunch in my recent, just kind of trying to collect my thoughts to do this podcast episode, just about wearing the suits in general. It seems yeah. like they did away with that. And I don't know if there's a reason for that. Or maybe the upside down is just not as toxic as we thought. Cumulatively. They didn't know what they were fucking with in mm-hmm. the first two seasons. So they were like, do all of the security protocol. And then like the whole thing with season two is they're trying to contain it. Mm-hmm. So they're like, we don't, we, they do the whole decontamination process with Hopper. Cause they're like, we want to make sure none of what you got yourself got on you gets anywhere further. So that, that makes sense to me. And then I think in terms of season four, it was like, it's unpleasant. It's uncomfortable, but, but that it's, might just be it. it's not toxic. Yeah. So it makes me think that if they were going for something like, no, you have to be really, really careful with your suit, then they may have decided to be like, we're not going to worry about it because we want to have those four teenagers stuck there mm-hmm. and having it be that there, there's no way to do that if it's toxic, but, or cold for that matter. And there's some other entries in the alien franchise where I really feel like that suit kind of has a design that I'm like, I see what you're doing here. And I like it. I mean, I loved the suits in this, like I, in this film, I, I like it, those huge round helmet, like, yeah, yeah. Cl- oh, yeah, almost like, yeah, like they're, it's futuristic, but super like retro at the same time. Yeah. I liked that. Same. Just so cool. So then, uh, a new segment I'm going to call coming attractions. We've already talked a little bit about, about season five and like kind of where we think this might go, but do we expect to expect or hope to see any elements from the, from the franchise or, or this film specifically in the final season? I'm going to say probably not this film, like in terms of story structure, because this film doesn't have a lot of answers in terms of the bigger mythology in play, but stylized you know do we want to see any like you know do we want to come back to the eggs do we want like to see more of the style of this play more of a role that sort of thing uh yeah kind of and i can think of at least some circumstances in parts of this franchise where there are some questions that just kind of get answered but like like always they're giving you more questions and i do feel like we get some of those answers uh in aliens the way that i wouldn't mind knowing more I hope maybe we explore the planet and we drop ship in to Vecna's domain and learn more about what I'm going to call LVVH1. Um, Well, then I guess to wrap up, um, any other just like overall takeaways from, from Alien, this experience of watching it in particular? The Hawkins lab and its presence, the way it was so secretive and the lack of information that you don't really have about the company uh, and what mm. they want. And crew is expendable. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Crew yeah. being expendable and just kind of their reach is very far. And so that's where I feel like an overall presence, which is kind of funny because, you know, the Demogorgon or the alien had its own presence, but these 
the corporate entity Wayland yutani has its own grip on the situation. Mm-hmm. There's no one who directly one-to-one feels like an influence on Brenner, but very much he, Brenner feels like an embodiment of that for sure. But yeah, all of that to say, uh, I hope that more of the Alien franchise does continue to see more light of day. I think there are more stories there. And, you know, I think as long as we've got stories that involve anything to do with the unknown, how we tamper with it, what do we do with it, how do we feed that, the cultivation of big corporate interests and companies and like that being evil and like where does the little guy fit in this... Those are all still going to be such huge and big themes in sci-fi horror over time. I feel like there's always something that feels like a galactic empire. Those are very real, relatable things that are happening in real life, as well as we see them in movies. And far be it from me to say, but the power of hyperbole, illusion, and metaphor will go a long way with me and creatives and how we form our opinions, not just from story, but how we influence things in real life and why am I saying the things I'm saying or creating the art I'm making? I think for me, like as a final note on alien, I'm glad I have finally seen this movie. Same. Um, because it was, this was one of my biggest like pop culture blind spots was, was alien. So I'm going to watch aliens. I don't make any promises past that, but I will, I will be watching at least Aliens. Not because I have to for the podcast, but because I'm genuinely intrigued. I genuinely want to know what happens next. Well, then this concludes our contemplation on Alien. As always, thank you for listening. And if, you know, you would like to hear us take a trip back to this franchise in a future installment of Starcourt Cinema, let us know. You know, chime in on our socials. You can find us on TikTok and Instagram or send us an email. And links for all of those are in the show notes. If you're a fan of our pod consider rating and reviewing us believe it or not that really does make a difference and help us out a lot coffee and contemplation is available wherever you get your podcasts thanks again for listening and until next time over and out can you imagine if they got Sigourney Weaver on Stranger Things god I would love that I don't think they can afford it at this point Probably for not, one more season, but it's like, can you imagine Billy Bobby Brown and Sigourney Weaver? I mean, I'd lose my mind. Hell, like not even in Stranger Things, they should just work together. <laughs> yeah, honestly, even if they just worked together at some yeah. point, that would be like a dream come true. Yeah.